Well, this morning I am in the fourth week of my sermon series entitled Strength and Weakness, looking at the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to a church in Corinth, which was part of ancient Greece, part of the Roman Empire. And he started the church around 50 AD, moved on to start other churches, and then craziness ensued in the church. He had to send multiple letters, had to make visits, had to try to work on all the issues that were arising. And all those issues kind of strained the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. So this letter you find is a lot of Paul having to defend his ministry and defend his authenticity as an apostle to them, unfortunately. Even though he's the one who started their church, there are other teachers who have come in and have thrown shade on Paul and his ministry because they're saying, look at how much Paul suffers. Look at all the struggles he has. Do you really think that an authentic disciple of Jesus, someone who really is blessed by God, would experience so much suffering? And so Paul has to defend not only the gospel, not only his ministry, but also explain to them that suffering is not antithetical to discipleship. And this, this uh, passage in particular that we're going to look at this morning, he has to talk a lot about that particular thing, about suffering and how it relates to the disciple of Jesus. So we're going to take it one section at a time and look at the three main encouragements that he has for the Corinthians. So beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15, Paul writes this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Let me pray before we continue. God, help us to understand what these words mean. Help us to apply these words to our life this morning. Reveal yourself to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, three points that Paul really makes in this passage to encourage them about the relationship between suffering and being a disciple. And the first point he makes is this, let your weakness and suffering magnify God's power. Let your weakness and suffering magnify God's power. Instead of seeing it as, oh no, I must not be a disciple because I'm suffering. He says, no, let it magnify the power of God. So he begins this section by calling the gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for our sins, he calls it a treasure. And he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he says, the gospel is the treasure. We are like clay pots. But the gospel is a treasure. This, this gospel, this good news that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that our sins have been forgiven, that shame and guilt are no more, that we have in Christ the peace that passes understanding, joy immeasurable, love beyond any love this earth could ever give us. We have a new heart 
and a new spirit, God's Holy Spirit, his very presence inside of us, empowering us to overcome sin and any addiction and anything that comes our way. He says, that is a treasure that we have inside of us, all of that and more. But we, the containers, we're just like clay pots, you know? We're jars of clay. We're nothing special. We're ordinary. We're beaten down. We're not very fancy or ornate. We suffer a lot in this world. He says we're, we're crushed. I'm sorry. He says we, we, uh, we're hard-pressed. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. But he says we're not crushed. We're not in despair. We're not abandoned. And we're not destroyed. Even though we're these ordinary clay pots that take a beating... We're not destroyed because we have this treasure inside of us, this power of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ inside of us to give us hope in the face of suffering, to give us love and peace no matter what is coming our way. And he goes on to say that we carry around in us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed. He says, listen, if we're following a Messiah, Jesus, who suffered and died a sacrificial death out of love to restore people to God, then does it not make sense that we will also suffer and face death as we pour out our lives sacrificially in love for others, right? If, if Jesus suffered and died and we're following him, it makes sense that the same would happen for us. But remember, he's, he's trying to defend himself against the Corinthian church. And the Corinthians, it was a very wealthy city, and they had teachers who would come in and said, listen, if you're following God, you know what it's going to mean for you? Health and wealth, prosperity. That's what it's going to mean if you follow it. And so this Paul character, look at him. He's so ordinary. Look at all the suffering. Look at all the trials he's going through. Are you sure that he's really a follower of God? Are you sure that he's really anointed by God? I don't know about that. And it's sad that Paul has to put it this way, but it's like, listen, guys, if you're following Jesus and Jesus suffered and died, does it not make sense that the same is going to happen? You're going to suffer and you're going to face death as you pour out your lives in sacrificial love for others to try to bring them back to God. It's not going to be all puppy dogs and ice cream. It's not going to be all rainbows and lollipops, right? It's not going to be health and wealth the rest of your days. If you're following Jesus, expect to follow him and suffer like him. Even though this letter was written 2,000 years ago, not much has changed, right? We live in a prosperous country, prosperous land like Corinth. And everywhere you look, you've got teachers who, in the name of God, are telling you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you just believe and follow him, then you're going to have increase and favor and blessing and all of these things that they tell you but they are liars. They are not teaching the Bible truly. They are twisting God's word for either their own greedy gain or for their own glory. And I know that if I were up here and I was teaching the same, this church would probably triple in size because you'd be drawing all kinds of people who are like, yes, I want health. What's the key to health? What's the key to wealth? What's the key? God's got it. I'm coming there. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul teaches. He says, we're not the treasure. Christ is the treasure. We're the clay pots. And if we're following Jesus, we're going to suffer as well. 
N.T. Wright put it this way in his commentary on, the, on 2 Corinthians. He said, the Corinthians have been looking at the container, at Paul's own public figure, his speaking style, and at the fact that he is in and out of trouble, weakness, and now near to death. And they have concluded that there is nothing at all remarkable about him. He ought to look more important than that, surely if he is really a messenger with a message from the living God. No, says Paul, you're missing the point. Precisely because of the vital importance of the message, the messenger must be dispensable. If it were otherwise, the jars might regard themselves as important. If the Corinthians want an apostle who is living by the gospel he proclaims, then they must look for these signs. Don't look, in other words, for a showy, flashy, rhetorical presentation which leaves the problems and sufferings of the world to someone else. Look for someone who's being given over to death for the sake of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may be revealed even in their mortal humanity. So the good news is that even though we're just ordinary clay pots, broken and beaten down by this world, that God's power and grace is in us and is clearly displayed through the cracks. You know, his light shines through. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to double down in this argument. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is made perfect in weakness. In these clay jots, these ordinary beaten down people, God's power is made perfect. That his grace and his power is more clearly displayed. And, and so we can be honest. We can just be honest about our weaknesses, about the hardships, about the persecutions, about the difficulties. Because it's not about us. It's not about the clay jars. It's about him. It's about the treasure. It's about God's power and grace within us. I am grateful. I've been a part of this church. Can you believe it now? Pastoring the church for 14 years. And the hardships, the troubles, the difficulties, all of that has just reinforced over and over to me that it's not about me, right? That it's not about me. It's about him, I don't want anyone looking to me and thinking somehow that it's about me and what I, I do. Anything that is good in me is from him. Anything that you've gained from my ministry is because of him working in me. I'm just the clay jar. I'm just the ordinary pot here. He's the treasure. And Paul's saying the same thing. I'm just a clay jar, you know? If you think somehow because I'm suffering and beaten down all this that somehow I'm not a disciple, I'm not you know, authentic as an apostle. It's not about me. It's never been about me. It's about him. It's about his power made perfect in my weakness. Andrew Peterson, singer-songwriter, put it this way. It's the great confounding reversal of the gospel of Jesus. If the word we preach is one of attainable perfection, of law, of justification by works, then when we fail, our testimony fails with it. But if we preach our deep brokenness and Christ's deeper healing, if we preach our inability to take a single breath, but for God's grace, then our weakness exalts him. And we're functioning as we're meant to since the foundation of the world. Hey, Don, can you turn around and just put the heat up a little bit? It just gets cold in here as soon as the heat stops. Let me continue in verse 16. So the first message he said, 
verse 16, sorry, here we go. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, some of us more than others, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly, earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's a lot in that. There's a lot of good verses in there. So Paul's first encouragement to them was this. He says, let your weakness and suffering magnify God's power and grace. And his second encouragement is this. Fix your eyes on eternal things. Fix your eyes on eternal things. Don't be so caught up, he says, in what your eyes can see, but fix your eyes on eternal things. I said this earlier uh, when I was leading worship, but one of the main things we do when we gather together on a Sunday is vision correction, basically. Right? This is vision correction time. It's you come in, all week you've been focused on the things of this world, everything that you can taste and touch and see. And then we come into this place and you're encouraged to lift your eyes above all of this to what is unseen and to fix your eyes on God and on the things eternal. All week you've been the center of your universe. Everything revolves around you. You're the consumer. You decide what you want and what you don't want. And then you come into this place and your vision is corrected and you realize you're not the center of the universe. And you're not here as a consumer deciding what you like and what you don't like, what you want and what you don't want. You're here as a worshiper. And God is the center of the universe. You're here as a worshiper. We're doing vision correction here. Because this stuff as real as it feels, as real as it seems, is passing away. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, this world in its present form is passing away. But God is eternal. He was here in the beginning. He'll be there in, in the end. He's so much more real than the things that you see and taste and touch. So lift your eyes up to the things that are unseen. Fix your eyes on eternal things. So Paul, as he's trying to defend himself and all the suffering he's been through and they're questioning whether he's authentic as an apostle, did you see the phrase he uses to describe his sufferings? He calls them light and momentary troubles, which is comical in some way because if you go back to chapter one of this letter, he said this, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So, in the beginning he said, 
My suffering was so bad that I thought I was going to die. I was despairing even of life. I felt in my heart the sentence of death. That's how bad it was. And he goes on, you ready for this list? And later on in chapter 11, he's going he's gonna to give this list as he compares himself to those health and wealth preachers. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. Light and momentary troubles. You know, it's like on the one hand, he's like, the things I have gone through in my life have been so hard that I felt like I was going to die. And I could list them for you. And he does list them here. All of these times that I felt like I was going to die, I've been in constant danger. That's how hard my life has been. That's how much suffering I've been through. And then on the other hand, he says, but when I look at that suffering and I compare it to the glory that is to come, when I compare it to what's ahead of me, when I'm with God forever, these are light and momentary troubles. It's like stubbing my toe. It's like a mosquito bite. This long list of troubles that led me to the point of thinking I was going to die compared to what is to come. It's nothing. It's light and momentary troubles. As Teresa of Avila said, the worst earthly life, when seen from the perspective of heaven, will seem like one night in a cheap motel. It's the same thing with Paul saying here. It's light and momentary troubles. So fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. It says, walk by faith and not by sight. It's a lot of pictures I could paint of what's to come. This is one that's given in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Fix your eyes on that, he says. Fix your eyes on the reality that one day sin and death and evil will be destroyed and be no more. He'll wipe away every tear and there'll be no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more crying, no more death. God himself will live with us. Everything will be made new. We will never decay. Nothing will decay ever again. Forever new. Our bodies will be restored perfectly. Fix your eyes on that, he says. Everything compared to that is a light and momentary trouble. It's one night in a cheap motel compared to the reality of what is to come. He says, all of this is as real as it seems 
it's passing away. It's not as real as the things that are eternal. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 18 to 23, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Same thing as he just said in 2 Corinthians there. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Did anyone wake up groaning this morning? <laughs> it says that's the way the world is. It's groaning. And we groan as we wait for that day when it'll be liberated from its bondage to decay brought it to the glorious freedom of the sons of God when God will make everything new and he will dwell with us and there'll be no more decay, no more suffering, no more death, none of that. Fix your eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Make your life about the kingdom. Hebrews 12, one through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What are we doing this morning? This is vision correction here. Every time you come into this place, part of what we're doing is correcting your vision so that instead of just focusing on the things you see and being consumed by those things, that you recognize that everything that you see, taste, touch, all of that is passing away. The things that are eternal, those are the things that last forever. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the things that are unseen. Fix your eyes on eternity. So continuing the last two verses in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, he writes this. So, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, let your weakness and suffering magnify God's power and grace. Fix your eyes on eternal things and bring him maximum glory through your life. He says, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Make it our goal to please him. Why? Why would you make it your goal to please God? Well, first of all, because you've been given such a great treasure that while you were still sinners, while you were rebels against God, that he came after you to save you from eternal separation from God, to give you eternal life, to forgive you your sins, to adopt you as a child of God, to put his Holy Spirit in you, to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you peace, to give you love, to give you everything, not because you deserved it, but because he loves you. And so in response to the one who gave his life for you, give your life to him. Make it your goal to please him, to live for him, to love him. And make it your goal to please him because everything in this world is passing away. Don't make it your goal to live for things of this world because on that day, you can't take it with you. 
it will not last. Do not make it your goal to accumulate as much as you can in this world because these things are temporary and they're passing away. Make it your goal to please him because one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he says. The judgment seat was known as the Bema. It was, it was where the judgment seat in those days was where the Roman governor would sit and dispense justice. This was an example of the one in Corinth, actually. And Paul tells the Corinthians that one day you will stand before Jesus to give an account for your life. The world's going to fade away. It's just going to be you and God. What will you have done with the life that you lived? The witness of the Bible is clear that the only way to be right with God is through trusting in Jesus' death for your sins. It's not through trying hard, not through doing good works. The only way to be right is by trusting in Jesus and his death for our sins. Romans 3, 21 to 24 says, Now a righteousness from God, in other words, a way to be right with God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. Justified means declared not guilty. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See that? He says there's a way to be right with God. It doesn't depend on your record in following God's laws, how good you are, how bad you are. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died a sacrificial death on the cross in your place, taking the punishment you deserved. Put your faith in him says, and you'll be saved. And you'll be right with God. How about John 3, 16, 17, and 36? These are Jesus' words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the only way to be right with God, the only way to get into heaven, is to trust in Jesus, to have your faith in him. It's not to come with your resume of what you've done in this body, because no one measures up to God's holy, perfect standard. But if you read closely 2 Corinthians 5.10 there, he's saying we're also going to be judged based on what we've done. There is a judgment, not just based on whether you've trusted in Jesus, but there's also going to be an element of judgment based on how you lived your life. It's not the whether you get in or out conversation, but it's something about the reward, something about how you, what eternity is like that depends upon how you lived. Because first of all, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know that we're not going to be rejected. But then, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 tells us this. By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, stop there. So he says, the only foundation, the only way in, the only way to be right with God is that foundation of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. But then how are you building upon that foundation? If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So he says the only way to be right with God, the foundation is Jesus. But then how are you living your life? How are you building upon that foundation? Are you spending your life on things that in the end, when you stand before the judgment and the, the fire of God, that judgment tests your life, will it just burn up everything that you lived your life for because it was pointless in the end? It had nothing to do with God and nothing to do with building or loving others. Is it just going to be burned up in the end or will it survive the test? How are you living your life? The good news is that every little thing you do for the Lord matters. And there is some element of reward, whatever that means. Matthew 10, 42. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Isn't that great? He says, listen, the littlest act of service done in my name, there's something eternally significant about that. You will not lose your reward. So what does this whole reward business mean? When we talk about, for example, storing up treasures in heaven and not storing up treasures in earth, what's he talking about here? When we stand before that judgment and he, the fire of God's that day tests the quality of our lives, what is this reward that he's talking about here? He's encouraging us to maximize God's glory in this life and maximize our, our enjoyment of him. I don't exactly know. I've never been to heaven. I can't tell you specifically, but let me try to maybe speculate as to what this reward business is all about. I would encourage you maybe to think about heavenly reward, not in terms of getting a bigger mansion, you know, or more jewels in your crown or having a house closer to the throne or anything like that. I want you to think about reward in this way. It's like if you're a golfer, all the hard work that you put into your golf game so that you can receive the reward of being able to go out there and hit the ball straight and long, right? That's the reward of all the work that you've put in. If you're married or you have a close friend, all the work that you've put in to knowing that person, to learning how to serve and care for that person, the reward is that you get to enjoy the relationship, that the relationship becomes more enjoyable because of the work that you've put in. If you are an, a, a musician, say you play the piano, the reward of your labor is what? That one day all of your work and labor in learning to play the piano ends with you being able to play freely and beautifully anything that's put before you. That is the reward of your labor. You see how the reward is organically connected to the activity that you put in the work, you put in the effort, and then you get to enjoy the reward of being really good at whatever that is that you've been working towards. So if the reward of giving yourself, maybe the reward of giving yourself in service to God, delighting yourself in him, loving him and loving others, is that one day you're going to reap the reward of that in a way that is somehow similar to the piano player, the musician, the, the athlete. You think about it, if heaven, if heaven were a basketball game, the greatest reward would be given to those who fully gave themselves to practicing the game of basketball because on that day, they'd be the ones who could play the most skillfully. They'd get the most enjoyment out of it. If heaven were an orchestra, 
then those who dedicated themselves to that instrument would enjoy heaven the most because they would play the most beautifully and skillfully. So if heaven is neither an orchestra or a game, but if heaven is love, if heaven is love, loving God, loving others, then who is going to enjoy heaven the most? Who's going to have the greatest reward in heaven? It's those who have in this world committed themselves to loving God with their whole heart, to loving their neighbor as themselves, that they will experience the greatest reward when they are in the place where the whole fabric is love, where it's all about God. It'll be those who have committed their lives and dedicated themselves to God and to loving him and loving others who will experience the greatest reward on that day. It's just a guess, but I think that explains reward a little bit better than having a better mansion in heaven, right? It says, give yourself fully because you will experience the reward on that day of experiencing God and love to the fullest. Anyone remember the movie Schindler's List? It's a spoiler here if you haven't seen it, but it's, you know, 20 some odd years old at this point or whatever. Remember at the end of Schindler's List, he's looking out at the sea of people who he has saved from uh, the concentration camps by the money that he spent. And they're, they're, they're grateful and they're thanking him. But then what happens? He breaks down crying by the money he wasted as he looks at, at the pin on his shirt, as he looks at the car and he looks at them and he says, you know, two people, five people, and he, he breaks down crying at, at, at the waste of his life. He says, why did I waste my life and my money on these things when I could have saved more people? And it's such a great picture of, of even though regret, I don't think, will be a part of heaven, right? It's not, it's not about regret. But it's a picture of what it might be like on that day to look back from the perspective of eternity and be like, why did I waste my life on that? Why did I waste my time on that? Why did I waste my money on that? When it's gone. And all that remain is God and people. <laughs> you know, they're the ones, they're the ones here. Why did I waste my time and my money and my energy on those things that don't last, that won't matter eternally? Remember what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. It's not about a mansion in heaven. It's about you having you here. And, and so you can imagine Paul pouring his heart and soul into this church in Corinth, starting them, loving them, all of this. He goes away and now other people come in and say, I don't know about this guy. Paul's like, I love you. I, I, I pour out my life for you. The suffering that you're watching in my life, it's not because I'm not an apostle of God. It's because I love you. It's because I love people because I am willing to put myself in danger time and time again and sacrifice myself out of love for people to bring them to God. That's why I'm suffering. Not because somehow I'm inferior to you and inferior to these other people who don't suffer. It's because I love you that I'm willing to sacrifice. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Do not waste your time on things that are temporal, things that are fading away. Fix your eyes on that which is eternal, on God, on people, and love God and love others as he's loved you. Amen? Amen.